If you have your copy of God's Word, let's turn together this morning uh, to Matthew 24. Uh, Matthew 24, as we continue our journey through this chapter, um, looking at uh, the events that Jesus describes. And if you recall, it's been a few weeks now because of the, of the missed Sunday and then a couple of weeks ago after, prior to that, uh, we began Matthew 24 with this understanding of looking at um, Jesus' description here of, of the end, of what was calling the, the sign of His coming in the end of His age. There at the end of chapter 23, Jesus had given to His disciples um, this, pronoun- this profound statement uh, that all of these things were going to be torn down. The house was going to be left desolate. And the disciples began to ask this question of Jesus, what will be the, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And prior to that, in previous sermon, we looked at verses 4 through 8, where Jesus gave more generalized world events that would happen, that would begin to show the disciples the beginning of this period of time. Uh, because he talked about false prophets that would arise. He talked about wars and rumors of wars, nations rising against nations with kingdoms, famines, and earthquakes. But Jesus said that all these things were merely the beginning of the birth pangs, really the beginning of, of, travail, of travail and tribulation. And so what he was warning them was to don't assume that when you see those things start to happen, that the end is coming. But now what we will find ourselves looking at this morning is not events that are generalized to the world, but some that are focused now on the church and on Christians themselves. So he says, this is what you'll see happening outside of the church. This is what you're going to see happening out in the world. And now he shifts gears to say, now here's what you're going to see happen inside of the church. So if you found your way there, Matthew 24, if you'll stand with me this morning for the reading of God's Word, we're going to be reading verses 9 through 14. Matthew 24, 9 through 14. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. The gospel, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. You can be seated. Now, if you recall, we have been looking at this passage in Matthew 24 from from a different perspective, maybe, than some of us have grown up with or some of us were used to. Um, A lot of us have probably, again, grown up with the understanding that a, a big part of the events of Matthew 24 are looking towards future events that have yet to occur. But what we're looking at in, in this sermon series is that the, the viewpoint that all these events were accomplished Uh, as Jesus said they would be uh, in this chapter in verse 34, that this generation would not pass away until all these things take place. So we're looking at all of these things happening before the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. And so again, as I said a couple of weeks ago, as we, as we go through the sermon this morning, you're going to notice there's a lot of cross-referenced Scripture, and even more so than normal in a typical sermon that I may do. And it's specifically because we're going to look at other places in the Bible uh, to help us understand the perfect fulfillment of what Jesus was saying here, uh, that all these things did come to pass inside of that generation. 
that for the disciples who were standing there, that they saw every one of these events take place. Now, again, if maybe you weren't here a couple of weeks ago, the, the, the reason that we're looking at it from this perspective is because I believe that it is the, the simplest and the clearest understanding of the text. And any time that you're studying a passage of Scripture, uh, you don't dive into a passage of Scripture looking for uh, the most obscure meaning of a passage. You want to find the clearest understanding of the passage. So when we look at Jesus talking to His disciples, He keeps continuing to use one certain word that helps us to understand who He's speaking to and the time frame of when He's talking about. And that word is the word you. And you'll notice again here in verse 9, he says, Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And again, reminding us of this verse 34 where Jesus says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. That word generation there meaning the group to whom Jesus was speaking, not a generation broadly of a nation or a generation broadly of a large period of time, but the word used there in the original language focusing on a specific group of people at a specific place in a specific time. So when Jesus says this generation will not, take, uh, will not pass away until all these things take place, he's speaking in context to the disciples about events that they would see happen in their period of time. As we begin this morning, the first thing that I want you to notice in this passage really is, is a repeat of what Jesus has already said, and he'll actually repeat it again uh, later on uh, in this chapter. And it helps us to be so keenly aware of the danger of what Jesus mentions here, and that's the danger of false teachers. Verse 5, he said, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many, talking about things that would be happening outside of the church. Remember, there were number, numerous people, as we looked at that passage, who after Jesus had died, rose up pretending to be the Messiah. Uh, the Jewish people were still on the lookout because they had rejected Jesus. They were still on the lookout for a coming Messiah, which made it very easy uh, for deceitful men to rise up and proclaim to be the Messiah, to proclaim to be the one who had arrived on the scene. And so now Jesus, again, is talking about the things that would happen inside the church. And so I want you to first notice here the cause of tribulation. Um, he says that, um, verse 9, he says, "...then they will deliver you to tribulation." and will kill you, and you'll be hated by all nations because of my name. And look at verse 10. We'll be there in just a moment. And at that time, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Now, the cause of tribulation is obviously because, it's, it tells us there at the end of verse 9, is because of my name. Jesus is saying, you're going to suffer tribulation because of who you are and because of what you believe. And in fact, Mark expounds on this a little more in the parallel passage of what Jesus is saying here. He says, Be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. Now, as we look at this, we look at this persecution and we look at this tribulation, the word tribulation and persecution are often used collectively there to describe the same type of situation. So when he talks about this tribulation, he's talking about a type of persecution that would arise here inside the Christian church. Now, what you'll see there in verse 9 is that he says that you will be hated by all nations. Now, what's interesting about that is that previously for the church, uh, prior to these events taking place, their persecution came mainly from inside of the Jewish circles. 
Um, because outside of Jewish circles, the people weren't too concerned about this rising sect of Christianity. It was mainly a Jewish concern because the Jewish leaders didn't like what they saw happening. They didn't like Jesus. They didn't like the disciples. They didn't like the preaching of the gospel. They didn't like the truth that they proclaimed. And so they were doing everything they could to squash it. Uh, this is why we see Jesus being taken and crucified is because in the Jewish thought, it was if we can get rid of their leader, everything else will fall apart. Uh, but what we realized was that that was the worst thing they could have done because this emboldened and empowered the disciples to go forth even more broadly and more powerful than perhaps they ever done before because they realized certainly the truth of who Christ was, that He was the Messiah who had come to die for His people. So after Christ had ascended back into heaven and the gospel began to go forth, what began to happen? Well, as the gospel would be preached, Jesus, again, is, is speaking to what's going to happen to them in the future after he passes away and resurrects from the dead. He's speaking what's going to happen there in the early years of the church. And what happened is the gospel began to spread outside of Jerusalem and the gospel began to be proclaimed in Gentile territories. People were converted. And as they were converted, cities were changed. And as cities were changed, entire nations began to be transformed. And what began to happen was those secular leaders, those pagan leaders, those who were uh, over these different regions and territories began to realize that something was afoot. And they were concerned because they didn't know what these Christians were going to do. They didn't know how they were going to respond. And so they began to push back. The Roman government began to push back against the Christians. And so Jesus is prophesying this. He says, you not only are you going to be persecuted by the Jews, he says, you're going to be hated by all nations. The word deliver here means to be given over to. So they were going to be suffering under this persecution, suffering under a period of tribulation. Uh, uh, Albert Barnes in his commentary says, all of this was remarkably fulfilled. If we look through the New Testament, Peter and John were imprisoned. Paul and Silas were imprisoned, also and also beaten. Paul was brought before uh, Galileo and before Felix and before Agrippa. So really, the, the profound answer to uh, where these things fulfilled is just to read through the book of Acts. And all through the book of Acts, we can see exactly what Jesus prophesied here beginning to be fulfilled. Because they were delivered over to the authorities. They were brought before the, the rulers and the scribes and the high priests and all the different other leaders that they would encounter. They were all brought before them in order for this persecution and this tribulation to continue. Now, and I want you to not only see the source of this, that it's coming not just from the Jewish people, but it's coming, or from the Jewish leaders, but coming from all the nations. But, but I want you to notice the, the severity of it. Because he says, you'll be delivered and they will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations. Now, this is a severe kind of persecution. Uh, Jesus here is not just talking about someone just not liking you because you're a Christian. Someone, you know, calling you a name because you're a Christian or someone ignoring you in a conversation because you're a Christian. Jesus says they're going to hate you to the point of killing you. Now, for the disciples, this would have been, at least at this period of time, before Jesus had been crucified, they would have thought, how, how is this going to happen, right? You know, because they've not, they've not witnessed this type of severe persecution, but it wouldn't take very long uh, after Jesus' ascension back into heaven that Stephen was the first Christian martyr, and they began to see these things take place. And they began to see Christians being persecuted all the way to death for the truth of the gospel. And in fact, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians about the severe persecution and endurance that he had to go through. 
He says, and far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. This was the stereotypical life of the believer. And this is what Jesus wanted the disciples to understand. He says, if you have professed faith in me, and if you have trusted in me, and you're going to follow after me, you need to understand that your life is going to be one of difficulty and trial and tribulation. He says, you're going to be delivered before the authorities. You're going to be delivered before the people. They're going to hate you because of my name, and they will kill you. But now remember, I said this was not just inside of the Jewish realm because this is oftentimes is what we see many of the disciples suffering is that from the, from the, Jewish, uh, from the Jewish leaders, but also outside from the Roman authorities. And, and perhaps the most notable there was been, would have been under Nero and his persecution of the Christians. Now, I don't know if you've ever studied Nero and his persecution of the Christians, but uh, it, was, it was perhaps some of the most severe and and grotesque things that happen. And, and I just wanted to read uh, just a quote from a church historian here this morning to talk a little bit about, to help us wrap our minds around not only what happened to our fellow believers in Christ, but to understand how profoundly this prophecy was fulfilled. When Jesus says, they will kill you and you will be hated of all nations, what that looked like in all practical evidence. And so this is Philip Schaff from, from his book. He says, a vast multitude of Christians were put to death in the most shocking manner. Some were crucified, probably in the mockery of Christ. Some sewed up in the skins of wild beasts and exposed to the veracity of mad dogs in the arena. The satanic tragedy reached its climax at night in the imperial gardens um, the, uh, where Christian men and women were covered with pitch or oil or resin, nailed the post to pines, were lighted and burned as torches for the amusement of the mob, while Nero, in fantastical dress, figured in a horse race, and displayed his art as a charioteer. Burning alive was the ordinary punishment of incendiaries, but only the cruel ingenuity of this imperial monster under the inspiration of the devil could invent such a horrible system of illumination. So this was the life of the New Testament believer. And Jesus is preparing his disciples for this because they've not experienced this yet, but he wants them to understand that this is what's coming. But, but hold on for just a minute, because Jesus is not going to leave them in this period of despair, right? Because if we were just to hear that, if we were here with Jesus in this moment, and he says, what I'm telling you is that you're going to suffer severe persecution. You're going to go through severe tribulation. You're going to be hated. You're going to be killed because of my name. And then he just left it at that. It would be pretty discouraging. You'd feel, okay, Jesus, well, can you, can you bring some hope? into the situation. So hold on for just a minute because we're getting there. I don't want you to think that Jesus is leaving them without hope. So we see here the source and the severity, uh, but I also want you to notice uh, the singularity because all of this happens for one reason. And again, we go back to that and it's that thing there at the very end of the passage. It says, because of my name. This is why these believers would endure persecution. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples earlier? He said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. 
This is just what it means to be a believer in Christ. When we identify with the name of Christ, it separates us from the rest of the world. It puts us in a place where we think differently, act differently, believe differently. And the world doesn't like that because ultimately what the, the, what the Christian life says to those who are non-believers in Christ is that there is a standard of truth. And that if you don't believe in that standard of truth, you are wrong. And if you persist in being wrong, if you persist in being disobedient to God, you will die and go to hell in the end. And so the world doesn't like that. The world doesn't like to be told there's a standard of truth. The world doesn't like to be told that there is a God who will judge the world in righteousness. So if we're doing what we should be doing as Christians, we will be hated for our faith. Now, I always preface this by saying there's a difference between standing for truth and righteousness and being a jerk, okay? You can be a jerk and people will hate you, but that's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is taking a stand for truth and righteousness. Now, sometimes people will accuse you of being hateful, of being a jerk because of your stand for righteousness. But what it means is that when we stand up and we say that truth is truth, we say that God's word reigns supreme above all. What God says is sin is sin, regardless of what the world says it is, that will cause us to be hated by the world. And so this is what the disciples were going to face. They were going to face this period of time where they were going to be preaching the truth of the gospel and the world would hate them. But it was not that the world hated the disciples themselves. It wasn't that Peter, James, and John, and Matthew, it wasn't that they hated them in particular. They hated the person whom they represented. Brothers and sisters, it's the same way for us. When we preach the gospel, if you go out on the streets with, with Pastor West, or you go to the jail with Pastor West, or you're at your job or your work, or maybe in your neighborhood and you're sharing the gospel with somebody, and they get angry at you, they're not, they think they're angry at you because of what you've told them, but ultimately they're angry at the one whom we represent. They're angry at God because it's God's truth. It's not our truth. So Jesus is showing them that the singularity here is that they're going to be hated not because of who they are, but because of who they represent. John MacArthur said, being identified with Christ's name will cost believers their freedom, their rights, their respect, and often their lives. Brothers and sisters, we just need to be keenly aware of this. And we've talked about this over and over before, that oftentimes as American Christians, we don't understand this yet. We don't understand in a personal way what this looks like. Now, we can read stories. Uh, we can read stories in Fox's Book of Martyrs of things that have happened throughout the history of the church. And in fact, today, the, the Christian church is more pure persecuted now than it has been at any other time in history. You know, Pastor Ben has often shared the stories of, of the churches there in China that are being persecuted because of their stand for the gospel. But it, as it, for, for the larger scheme of things, the church in America has never experienced this. But we need to be reminded of this. We need to be reminded of this fact, that it is very likely, very possible that for us as American Christians, there will come a day where we have to face the same type of tribulations and persecutions that the disciples did here. So when we come to the end of all this, we see that verse 9, Jesus says, they will deliver you to tribulation, they will kill you, you will be hated by all nations because of my name. This was perfectly fulfilled in the lives of the early apostles there before the destruction of A.D. 70. Now the second thing I want you to notice there in verse 10 is the betrayal of kindred. Now this really could almost fall under the same idea of, of a tribulation, of a persecution, because it says that at that time many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. 
Again, to quote Mark in, his, uh, in, in the, the Gospel of Mark in the parallel passage, it says, Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. So when we understand the betrayal of, of kindred, the first thing we see in this is the abandonment of faith. Because Jesus says at that time, many will fall away. And I'm always struck by that word many, anytime Jesus uses it. You know, because oftentimes as Christians, we can tend to think of, of the gospel going forth. We see oftentimes a lot of people being saved. Uh, and we think about heaven. We think about the numerous people who are there. But uh, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is talking and he gives a stern warning. He says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these marvelous works for you? Did we not do all these great things for the kingdom of God? And I will say, depart from me, you worker of unrighteousness. And the passage has always struck me because Jesus doesn't say there's good, that there's going to be a few people, right? We, we know that in the world, there's a lot of people who hate God. We know that in the world, there's a lot of people who reject the gospel. So we understand that there's going to be a lot of those people who, who when they die, they're going to truly realize that there is a God, that He is real, and they're going to stand before Him without excuse because they've never desired to even serve Him. But Jesus is saying that in that same judgment, there are going to be not just a few people, but there are going to be many people who die and stand before God expecting to go to heaven, but are going to instead end up in hell. So anytime I see Jesus use that word many, it always causes me to pay careful attention. And so what does Jesus say here? He says, at that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. You know, Jesus told a parable about this. He told a parable about the seed that was cast upon the soil in Matthew chapter 13. And he says, The one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet when he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary, and when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. So here we are, ten chapters later, and Jesus is describing the very thing that he talks about in the parable of the soils. Because he says there is one on whom the seed is scattered, and it, it, it immediately rises up. And man, it looks like this is, the, this is the Christian above all Christians. And brothers and sisters, if we're honest, we've probably seen this sometime in our life. We've seen somebody who professed faith in Christ. And man, they were at church every time the doors were open. Uh, they were at every event the church was having. They were talking about Christ. They were celebrating Christ. But then when something began to happen in their life, when persecution came, or when difficulty came, they just walked away. And what Jesus is saying was that that person had never professed true faith. It looked like true faith. It sounded like true faith. But the evidence of true lasting faith, Jesus is going to talk about, is the one who endures. It's the one who lasts through that tribulation. Jesus here in Matthew chapter 13 says, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And so what has Jesus just been talking about here in this passage? He says, persecution is coming. Difficulty is coming. Why? Because of my namesake. Because of the word. Because of the gospel that you're going to be preaching. And so Jesus says, when the tribulation comes, he says, that's when the separation is going to happen. You're going to see inside of the church who is really, truly saved and who has just been making a verbal profession without a true heart change. He says, at that time, many will fall away. 
Now think about that, brothers and sisters. I mean, think about this. I mean, you think about how important it is to have that fellowship amongst your brothers and sisters in Christ. Let, let's consider ourselves an early a church in the, in the early part of the first century. And they were all, have all been gathering together Sunday after Sunday, week after week, year after year, laboring together for the cause of the gospel. And then persecution begins to arise. And one Sunday we come back and 10 people are gone. And then another 10 people are gone. And it's not just because they've been taken away. It's just because they've abandoned faith altogether. Think about how discouraging that would be in a large scale, right? Because you've been serving and laboring alongside of them. But Jesus says, you need to be prepared and you need to get yourself ready. He says, because this is where the proof is, is, is revealed of whether somebody truly believes the gospel, has truly put faith, because he says many of them will fall away. There's an abandonment of faith, but there's also an abandonment of family. And this perhaps maybe is even more tragic. Because not only are, are they going to uh, be abandoned um, by their physical family, but also their spiritual family. Because Jesus says that they're going to betray one another and hate one another. So you have people that one week where your brother, you would can call them your brother or sister in Christ. And then the next week, they've turned you over to the authorities to be killed or to be persecuted. And it was not only just inside the church, but it was family members, a father, his child, a child against their parents. So think about this. Not only are we talking about this, this spiritual relationship of brothers and sisters in Christ, but even true physical relationships of a father and a child, of a child and their parent. And Paul talks about this. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, for we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without and fears within. He said we were concerned about what was happening. Paul oftentimes talked in his letters about those who had abandoned the faith. Perhaps most notably, 2 Timothy chapter 4, For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Then later on in that same chapter, he says, At my first offense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. So Jesus is warning them. He says, you're going to see as the tribulation increases, as the persecution increases, that many who had professed faith will not only walk away from the gospel, walk away from the church, but they're going to betray one another. One Roman historian, as he began, he was talking about the time of the persecution of Nero, says that at first those who confessed were seized and afterwards upon their information a great multitude were brought in. So even this historian was speaking of the idea of there were some who rejected faith and confessed and, and can turn themselves over to the Roman authorities, and then they began to turn others over to bring them in so that they could be brought in and charged uh, for preaching the gospel. So we see, again, this also taking place before this destruction of the temple in AD 70. All of these things are being perfectly fulfilled just as Jesus said that they would be. Now, we looked at the cause of tribulation. We looked at the betrayal of kindred. I want you to notice the allure of false teaching. Look at verse 11. He said, Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Now, remember, Jesus has already talked about false 
messiahs outside of the church in the world in general that would mislead many of the Jews and cause them to wander off into the wilderness and to different places like that. But now he's talking about specifically inside of the church. He says that many false prophets will arise. And notice he says that there are going to be many in number. There's that word again, many. We're not just talking about a few obscure people. Jesus says you need to be keenly aware. You need to keep watch because there's going to be numerous people who are going to try to arise inside the church. And not only are they going to rise up, but they're going to mislead. There's that word again, many. Brothers and sisters, we need to be careful when we look at these things and we watch and we understand what takes place. Because what Jesus is talking about here was not only perfectly fulfilled here in the disciples' generations, but we continue to see these things happen. We continue to see false teachers rise up and to mislead people. The interesting thing about false teaching and the interesting thing about Satan is he's not very creative when it comes to false teaching. Like he dresses it up a little different in every generation, but if you trace it down to, your, to the roots, it's always the same type of, of false teaching. It's always the same type of deception. It just gets dressed up a little bit differently for every generation. Now, Jesus had earlier said in Matthew chapter 7, he says, beware the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. He says, you will know them by their fruits. Paul says, speaking of those who were false teachers, he says, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And in the book of Acts, he says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. From among your own selves will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that day and night for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. So, the reason that Jesus warns them so sternly is because there's going to be many of them and they are going to be alluring. This is the thing about false teaching. If false teaching were obviously grotesque or deceitful, it would not be carrying people away. But false teaching is alluring because false teaching often contains a small element of truth. Just enough truth to make it seem like, well, well maybe that's right. Maybe that, maybe that is what the Bible says. Maybe that is what Christ intended to teach. There's always that small element of truth that is alluring to people, that captures them away. And so Jesus warns us, Paul warns us, that we need to be on the watch, that we need to be careful, that we need to be uh, guarding our minds against these things. He says, because many false prophets will arise and mislead many. So there's going to be many in their deception. They're going to, to carry them away. Now, all we have to do, again, is look back at the, at the book of Acts. I mean, excuse me, to look at the book of Acts, but also at the other New Testament writers. Peter in 2 uh, in, in Peter chapter 2 says this, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly in- introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Paul, in the book of Romans, now urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of the Lord Jesus, but of their own appetites. By their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. So again, the question we're asking as we study through this passage is, were these things fulfilled in the period, in the generation of the apostles before 
the fall and the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. And as we look there at verse 11, we can say again, yes, these things were fulfilled. The New Testament is replete with examples of the apostles warning the church of the number of false teachers, not who would continue to arise, but who had already arisen and began to deceive many. We look again, as we quoted a couple of weeks ago, at the book of Galatians, where Paul writes to them, and he says, I'm astonished that you have so quickly departed the truth of the gospel for another gospel. And he rebuked them and rebuked the false teachers who had begun to arise there. Now, next thing I want you to notice here is the destructive power of sin. Look at verse 10. Excuse me, look at verse uh, 12. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Now, the use of the word lawlessness here uh, uh, leads us to understand that a lot of the dominant teaching of these false teachers was that of, of antinomianism. Uh, so antinomianism comes from the Greek word against and the Greek word law, so it means against the law. Uh, so it's, it's the teaching of the idea of living without regard to the righteousness of God um, and giving a license to sin. So saying that because God's grace is abundant, uh, that we can just kind of do whatever we want to do. We don't have to worry about it because God's grace is sufficient to forgive us. Now, we understand that God's grace is sufficient to forgive any and all sins that we've ever committed. But that doesn't mean that we just live in sin because God's grace is sufficient. In fact, Paul addressed this, right? Romans chapter 6, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? But there was this teaching, this idea that, listen, you can kind of live however you want to because God's grace is sufficient. God will just forgive you for it. You don't have to worry about God's righteousness or worry about God's law. You can just ignore those things because Jesus has come, and now because Jesus has come, forgiveness is available. Just eat, drink, and be merry. Do whatever you want to do, and God will be okay with it. Now, we look at that, and as New Testament Christians, as believers in the truth of the gospel and the truth of the Bible, we think, well, that is the silliest thing you've ever heard, right? Why would anybody think that? But let me go back to what I talked about a minute ago, that Satan is not very creative in his false teaching. And in fact, today, there is a large movement inside some realms of Christianity of what they now have termed hypergrace, which teaches this same kind of concept. The Old Testament is just done away with. You don't have to worry about anything that God said in the Old Testament. The Ten Commandments have no application to the world today and to Christians today, and that God is full of grace, and that you can just live however you want to live. You don't have to worry about confessing sin. You don't have to worry about evaluating sin in your life. You just live, and God will just forgive you no matter what. It was the same thing. And so Jesus is saying that lawlessness is increased. Uh, because these false teachers had begun to come in and begin to teach this lawlessness, begin to teach this idea of, uh, of just kind of doing whatever you want to do. So listen, if, if you had Jesus on the one side saying that if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow after me. If you have Jesus on one hand saying that if you love me, keep my commandments. If you have Jesus on one hand saying, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I command you? It's a way of difficulty. It's a way of trial and tribulation. It's a narrow way. And on the other side, you have another person saying, well, no, listen, the way to God is much more broad. You don't have to worry about this self-sacrifice and discipleship. You don't have to worry about uh, saying no to yourself and denying the pleasures of this world. Just do whatever you want to do and enjoy life, and God will forgive you in the end. Now, which do you think is going to be more alluring to people? 
So Jesus is warning them that lawlessness will increase, and as it does, he says, most people's love will grow cold. The love of Christ, the love of his teachings, the love of his people, even those who had prior professed faith in Christ, prior professed an allegiance to the church, prior professed a love of God's people, because of the allure of sin, because of the allure of lawlessness, would begin to drift away, and their love would grow cold. William Barclay says this, he says, The true Christian is the man who holds to his belief when belief is at its most difficult, and who, in the most discouraging circumstances, refuses to believe that God's arm is shortened or his power grown less. Trial and tribulation, difficulty, the allure of false teaching would cause all of these people, these many people, to begin to turn cold and to reject the truth of the gospel. It's what John writes of again in verse in chapter First uh, John chapter two. They went out of us, for they were not really of us. Where they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they are all not of us. So we see the destructive power of sin. I want you to next notice the proof of endurance in verse thirteen. He says, "But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved." Again, the Cross-reference to Mark there. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. This verse helps us to understand, number one, that endurance is needed. Because, as one commentator put it, the test of salvation is not verbal profession, but faithful obedience. It's not just whether we say that we're a Christian, it's whether we are obedient to Christ. It's not whether we just confess Christ in a moment, but by at the end of our life, if we're still confessing Christ the same way we did at the very beginning. Most people say, a lot of times, if you encounter somebody on the street and you say, are you a Christian? They say, oh, yes, I remember I prayed a prayer, you know, in in 1967. uh, I went down to the front of the church and I prayed a prayer, and that's how I know I'm a Christian. Brothers and sisters, there's nothing wrong with going to the front of the church and praying a prayer. But that's not how you know you're a Christian. You know you're a Christian because you've put your faith and trust in Christ. You know you're a Christian because you love Christ more today than you did yesterday and the week ago and a month ago and a year ago. You know you're a Christian because God's work is evident in your life, convicting you of sin and drawing you to a more holy life. You know you're a Christian because you're still serving Christ. That's how we know, because it's a life that is followed out. And so Jesus says that the one who endures to the end will be saved. So endurance is needed. And and Jesus here, there's two a parallels to this passage because specifically Jesus here is talking about endurance through this time of trial and tribulation that would happen before the fall of the temple. This rise in persecution, this rise in difficulty. Jesus says the one who endures to the end will be saved. They'll be brought through. They'll be carried through. But in other places in the scripture, this same idea is referenced to that it more broadly also speaks to the idea of Christians. That when we endure through not just a certain period of persecution, but through the life of persecution, the life of tribulation, that when we endure to the end of our physical life, we will also be saved. So there's there's two understandings of this passage here because it's demonstrated in two different ways inside the Scripture. So we need endurance. Now, how do we do this? Is this just that as Americans, we pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps and we, we just summon up the strength inside ourselves to endure through tribulation? Is Jesus telling the disciples, you just need to toughen up and prepare yourselves? No, what Jesus is promising here is the power of the Holy Spirit. 
He says, you will endure to the end and be saved, not because of your own strength, but because of the strength of the Holy Spirit that I'm going to give you. I will give you everything that you need to endure. So endurance is needed, but salvation is promised. Luke says, yet not a hair on your head will perish by your endurance. You will gain your lives. Now, what's interesting is that historians say in the time of the destruction of the temple there in AD 70, that over or approximately one million Jews perished in that event, but not one single Christian died in that, in that destruction of the temple. Now, many of them had died leading up to that through persecution and other things, but in that single event, not one Christian had died because they had all been removed out of the city. In fact, John Gill, speaking of this, he says, "...the same shall be saved with a temporal salvation, when Jerusalem and the unbelieving inhabitants of it shall be destroyed." For those that believed in Christ, many of them through persecution were obliged to remove from thence, and others by a voice from heaven were bid to go out of it as they did and removed to a little village beyond the Jordan and were so preserved from the general calamity and also with an everlasting salvation, which is the cause, the, excuse me, which is the case of all that persevere to the end as all true believers in Christ will, end quote. So Jesus is saying, you're going to need this endurance, but I'm going to promise you that I'm going to give you the power to endure, and I'm going to give you the power that's going to protect you to keep your life safe, and you will survive. You will make it through to the other side, both now and at the end of your life. Now, the last thing that I want you to notice here as we close is the power of the gospel. Look at verse 14. The gospel of this kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Now remember, the question we've been asking ourselves in studying this is, have, were all of these um, fulfilled before the fall of the temple in AD 70? And everyone we looked at this morning, by scriptural reverence, by historical evidence, we've been able to say and prove that yes, all of these were perfectly fulfilled before the fall of the temple in AD 70, which comes to verse 14. Now, when you read verse 14, you might be tempted to think, ah, oh, here we go. Here's one that cannot be proved that it was fulfilled before the fall of the temple in AD 70. But what we need to do is to dig a little deeper. Notice Jesus says that the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony. Mark says the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Now, what I want us to understand, first of all, is the priority, because Jesus had told his disciples that in this, the preceding verses, verses 5 through 8, that that would not signify the end. He says all these things are just the beginning of birth things, but the end has not come. And so now he's continuing with these other signs inside the church, but when he comes to verse 14, he says, and then the end will come. So this is the culmination of all this, right? He's saying that now this is what you can look for to know that the end is on the horizon, that the end is coming. But what does Jesus say? He says that the gospel of kingdom will be preached. Because this was the number one priority of the disciples. Their, their first priority was not to just be on the lookout for signs. Their number one priority was just to continue to faithfully preach the gospel. Brothers and sisters, that hasn't changed for us. Listen, regardless of where you stand on your eschatology, regardless of whether you're premillennial, millennial, postmillennial, or panmillennial, which just means it's all going to pan out in the end, regardless of where you are, the number one priority for us as believers is not to just be looking for signs in everything that happens in the world. Our number one priority is just to be faithfully preaching the gospel. 
Jesus says, you go, you preach the gospel because this is what I've sent you out to do. So this was their priority. But notice the place because Jesus says here, and again, we're asking this question, was Jesus true in verse 34 when he says, this generation will not pass, pass away until all these things take place? Then you look at verse 14, the gospel of this kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony. Well, what we have to understand is the word that Jesus uses here um, is okumene, which means not the entire world that we would say today. When we see the word world, we tend to think of the entirety of the globe, every nation, every people group, every tribe. But the word that's used there means the inhabited area. So when, when they use the word world, they're talking about the entire known world at that period of time. Originally, they used that word, the Jews used that word for the Greek world or it was used for the Greek world, and then for the Roman, the Roman Empire, and then afterwards for the whole of the known world. So when you see that word world there, and that word is used, it's talking about, in this context, it's used in two different ways. There's cosmos, which means the entire world, and then okumene, which means the inhabited area. So again, he's not talking about every place on the earth, but just every known place to exist inside of a certain realm. Now we can understand that from Scripture. Because if we go back to Luke chapter 2, very familiar passage to some of us. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken. What of all the world? Now what's the word world used there? All the inhabited earth. Because the Roman, I mean, I mean Caesar had no right to take a census of anybody outside of his dominion. But what he's talking about is everything that's under his control. He was taking a census of all the known regions, of all of the recognized inhabited earth. R.T. France says, this is not so much a geographical term, which much include every area and community now known to be on the earth, but rather an indication of the universal offer of the gospel to all nations. So when Jesus says that it's going to go into all the world, he's talking about then to all the known earth at that time, to all the known regions that, that they would know and understand, what they would consider the, 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 the full spread of people groups at that period of time known, he said, then the end will come. Now, if we want proof of that, I want you to just listen to some of the language of Paul as he describes the work of the church in the early part of the first century. Romans chapter 1, he says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being proclaimed, what? Throughout the whole world. Colossians chapter 1. He says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world also, it has constantly been bearing fruit and increasing. Colossians chapter 1, verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which Paul, I, was made a minister. And then in Romans, he says, in the power and signs and wonders and the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem, far around is Illyricum, I have preached the gospel of Christ. So Paul bears witness to this, that the gospel was preached to the entirety of the known world at that time. Again, perfectly fulfilling the promise that Jesus has laid out here, that all of these things would be fulfilled before this generation would take place. Now, the last thing that I want you to see here is the promise. He says, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come. So Jesus is saying here, in this verse, I see a beautiful promise. Because Jesus is saying, in the face of the fiercest objections, 
in the face of the most severe persecution, in the face of betrayal from family members and from spiritual family members, in the face of everything that the world can bring against the church, the mission of the church marches on. The gospel will still be proclaimed. He says, even though they're going to throw you to the lions, even though they're going to light you on fire, even though they're going to throw you in prison, even though they're going to beat you, even though they're going to do everything they can to squash the truth of the gospel, he says, the gospel will be preached and proclaimed as a testimony to all the nations. He says, and then the end will come. Now, it's interesting the language that Jesus uses here because he doesn't say the same thing as he says in Matthew 28. Because here he just says that the gospel shall be preached to the whole world. It's, it's this idea of, of preaching indiscriminately, just taking the gospel and sharing the truth of the gospel, helping people to understand who Christ is, what he has done, what he has accomplished, and why we must put our faith and trust in him. But now if you go to Matthew 28, you'll notice that Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel, what? making disciples. So then he gives them a, a different paradigm that we carry forward even to this day. Because it's not just about sharing the truth, but it's about preaching the gospel, and making disciples. So here, Jesus is giving them this promise that all of these things are going to be perfectly fulfilled. The gospel will do its perfect work. Now, why was this gospel going out? Why would this be preached to everyone, to all the nations, and then the end would come? Because remember what we talked about. What is the end? The end is not the end of the world. The end is of the age of the Jewish faith, the end of the Jewish realm there in Jerusalem. When the temple is destroyed, God is establishing the true fact of Jesus as the Messiah. He says, so everyone's going to know because you're going to go out and proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ. You're going to go out and you're going to proclaim the gospel to every known region in the world so that when this happens, there's no doubt. That when this happens, everyone will know and understand, oh yeah, what those disciples were telling us about Jesus is true because look at what just happened to Jerusalem. God himself, not just Jesus proclaiming himself to be Messiah, not just the disciples uh, proclaiming Jesus as Messiah, but God himself is firmly establishing the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. And brothers and sisters, as we look at our world today, we see the same thing for us, that God has called us to proclaim the truth of the gospel. Why? Because one day, Jesus is going to come again. And all of that will be established. What, what Jesus is saying is, is then the end will come and everyone will know the same thing will happen for us. As we proclaim the truth of the gospel, there's coming a day when Jesus will return and people will know that what we have said, what the Scriptures have said, what God has said is true. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank You for this time. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, we thank you that your word not only speaks prophetically, but we see the fulfillment. We thank you, God, that we can see the explanation of the words of Jesus found all throughout the New Testament. That what he proclaimed, that what he taught was true. And Lord, we're thankful. Lord, for the promises that you gave to your disciples. And Lord, perhaps most of all, as we see this promise that you would carry them through tribulation and trial and persecution. And Lord, then we see that promise repeated later on in the New Testament. Lord, as we look at our own Christian lives, Lord, we want to commit ourselves to the truth and the proclamation of the gospel. We want to hold as a priority, Lord, the truth of your word, the good news of Jesus. And Father, we know that as you have taught that 
By doing so, it will cause us to be hated. It will cause us to be persecuted. It will cause us to be ostracized from this world. But Lord, we thank you for this promise that you will carry us through. Lord, that the testimony of our life, the endurance of the power of the Holy Spirit, is the evidence of our true and lasting faith in you. Lord, guide us and direct us. Lord, may we live our lives, Lord, looking and longing for the arrival of Jesus, because we know that it means that we're going home to be with you. May we look for the, and long for the arrival of Jesus as, Lord, the perfect fulfillment of, of everything that you promised in the Scriptures. But, Father, also, may we not look for and long for the, G, the, the arrival of Jesus so much that we forget what you have commanded us to do. Lord, that we are to be witnesses and making disciples wherever we go. And, Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name.